Cortland Computer Services presents the Baseball Lifer Podcast. Oh, hi there. Don Wardlow here, your Baseball Lifer. We're going to get right to it because we got a doubleheader today. First off, Pittsburgh writer David Finoli. He writes about all Pittsburgh sports. And we're going to talk about Jim Leland, the Pittsburgh manager who was elected to the Hall of Fame on December 3rd. I'm going to talk to him about that. Later on, we'll have author Bill Cushing on the show. So a doubleheader today on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Before we get to our guests... I'm going to talk a little about what happened last week in the game. The Giants, who didn't get Shohei Otani, signed Korean hitter Jung-Hoo Lee. And hitter he is. He's 25 years old. The Giants signed him to a six-year deal for $113 million. In Korea, Jung-Hoo Lee never hit under 318. Think about that. Those are George Brett numbers. Those are Tony Gwynn numbers. Those are Ted Williams numbers. He never hit below 318, and he's 25 and coming to America. We'll see what he does with the Giants. Meantime, the Royals signed former Met and former Padre Seth Lugo to pitch for them, and they signed Will Smith, who played last year for the Texas Rangers, the world champions. And he's going to go now and play for the desperately bad Kansas City Royals. And on the other side of things, the Mets have announced the passing of Ken McKenzie, who was 89 years old. Ken was the only pitcher on the 62 Mets who had a 5-4 and four record. He had an above 500, better than even record. Five up, four down. He won five of the 40 games that team won. He won one-eighth of their games. So with his passing yesterday, there are nine 1962 Mets still alive. They are pitchers Galen Sisko, Jay Hook, and Craig Anderson. Infielders Cliff Cook, Rick Herscher, and Ed Crane Poole, and Felix Mantilla, four infielders, and two outfielders, John Demerit and Jim Marshall. Those are the nine Still alive, 1962 Mets. Next up is our interview with David Finoli. We've had him before, the man who writes about all sports in Pittsburgh. We're going to talk about Jim Leland. That's the next thing you're going to hear. My first guest today on the Baseball Lifer podcast is the man who writes about Pittsburgh sports. You know, Damon Runyon wrote about New York sports. Marty Apple and Bill Madden wrote about New York sports. David Finoli writes about Pittsburgh sports. We've had him on before. David, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. And the subject today is the man who was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame is going to be enshrined next July. Former Pirates manager, among other teams, Jim Leland. So let's talk about the Jim Leland you remember as a baseball fan. You know, certainly that wasn't a good era of 
of, of pirate baseball. Back then, you were coming off the, the drug trials, you know, as high as Pittsburgh had been in the 1970s. They were that low uh, in, in the mid-80s. Uh, Chuck Tanner, who had managed them to uh, the 79 World Championship, had just fallen off, off base. The team, I think, was 54 and 108. When they hired this uh, minor league manager who had been on the uh, Tony La Russa Chicago bench for a couple of years by the name of Jim Leland, the first thought we had was, who the hell is this? Um, it, w- it wasn't met with a lot of enthusiasm, but you know, after, after a tough year and a half, the team caught fire the, the last month and a half of, of the year and um, ended up with 80 wins because of a almost perfect September record. And just listening to the enthusiasm of his players and seeing what he was developing with young players. I mean, Jim was Jim was a, a player's manager, uh, certainly, but it wasn't without discipline. It wasn't without respect from his players. Um, I mean, Jim made the quote once that, uh, um, you know, lie to a player and it could affect your relationship with them through life, tell them the truth and it might affect it for 24 hours. And that was, that was him. He was, he was honest with his players. He was honest with the media. He was honest with the fans, but my, my first impressions were, you know, who the hell is this? And as we found out soon enough, you know, he, he managed the last uh, really great era of, of pirate baseball to date. He was manager of the year three times, twice in Pittsburgh and once in Detroit his right. two in Pittsburgh were 1990 and 1992, and he came in second place for manager of the year while he was in Pittsburgh in 88 and 91. That's really four out of five years that he was either manager of the year or second place for that honor. Yes. Yeah, he, he. Um, I mean, 88, you know, they had that successful end of uh, – um, in 87 and then just um blew up in, in 88 they they led the division for a while kind of tailed off at the end but won 87 games that year um were the darlings of baseball and all of a sudden it appeared after um some some really bad seasons that the pirates might be on the track again 89 they they kind of fell back i believe 74 wins that year but um they kind of fell back with injuries but Man, he he took them on a three-year ride where, in my estimation, they were the best team in baseball. Just unfortunately, um, ran into a young Atlanta pitching in 91 and 92 and, and a bullpen that was red hot in 1990 with the Cincinnati Reds. But, um, you know, he, he, became, he became an icon in, in Pittsburgh and still is. He was known for developing talent too much of which packed up and left after a while. Two of those names are Barry Bonds and Doug Drabeck. Drabeck, we thought we we did have him signed, and at the last minute he opted for Houston. What I remember about Bonds is is they, they couldn't obviously afford um, to keep uh, their talent. And, you know, I seem to recall they were trying to make a decision who to go for between Bonds and Van Slyke. And they opted for Vance Like, which was, you know, unfortunately the wrong move as he was injured and his career ended soon after. While he had those guys. And and Bonds, there was a famous episode in spring training where Bonds had been uh, ignorant to their um, 
their media relations guy who was trying to set up uh, interviews. And um, Jim Leland, I, I don't know if you recall this because it hit national TV. And the, the guy was a, uh, a college friend of mine, Jim Lachima. Um, but um, Leland just spared no, he, he was going to have none of that. He didn't care that it was the best player in baseball going against the um, going against the team exact. He got in Bonds' face. He ripped them apart and basically told them, if you're going to pull this stuff, you're going to get the hell out of here. And that was Jim Leland. I mean, Jim, it didn't matter who you were. You, you needed to react the same way. You needed to react. Um, in that instance, you needed to react with respect or he wasn't going to put up with it. And, and, you know, I don't know that Barry Bonds would have uh, cowed down to anybody else in baseball but Jim Leland. But, man, he backed off and and um, and uh, certainly became MVP that year. That was before the 92 season. But um, just did a wonderful job with it's, – it's not easy to uh, manage – the best in the game um, as people might think it is. And then the same can be said of that Florida Marlin team where Wayne Huizenga, you know, hired an all-star manager and Jim Leland to manage uh, a team that he had purchased for uh, winning a world series. And, you know, it's, it's great to have talent, but you still got to manage, you got to manage the egos, you got to manage it. And, and that year, Jim won his, uh, his uh, first one and only world championship. And, just again, was magnificent in handling those people. Another name that Jim Leland developed was Tim Wakefield, who began as a very light hitting outfielder, but eventually became a knuckleball pitcher. I was actually at his first game. We didn't know much about Tim Wakefield at the time. Um, he wasn't exactly considered, you know, a prize prospect. As you mentioned, he he was a uh, an everyday player who just couldn't make it and taught himself how to throw a knuckleball. And I just remember when he was warming up, you know, watching him pitch and just confused, thinking this guy was going to get hammered. In fact, the first inning, he was out there. He, he gave up some very hard hits. And then all of a sudden, you saw the effectiveness of Tim Wakefield um, as he, he pitched very well that first game and in that first season. Um, and you have to know that I remember Leland always said that was very tough for him to know how to handle them because you can't handle a, a knuckleballer the same way you handle um, uh, an everyday pitcher. An everyday pitcher, you know, um, or not an everyday pitcher, but a, a traditional pitcher. And and you know when they get tired, you, you have a, a good feel on when to pull them. Knuckleballers are not that way. Um, but um, he, he did manage them magnificently. Um, Lord knows we had, we had uh, kind of hoped in game six of the 92 NLCS that year, uh, Wakefield uh, dominated, uh, was he had been dominant the, the series against the, the Braves. And we were all kind of hoping he would pull them out early because the Pirates had a, a double-digit lead. And we were all hoping he'd pull them out early and, and save them for game seven, which, you know, we know what happened in game seven. We don't like to talk about that in Pittsburgh, and I'm sure Jim Leland doesn't like to talk about that. Um but uh, you're right. He did a magnificent job in helping him develop into uh, a 200-win uh, major league pitcher who uh, unfortunately, sadly, died this past year. You know, it's been a long time since Jim Leland managed in Pittsburgh. He managed after that 
not only in Florida, but in Denver and in Detroit. And now it's so difficult for a small market team like Pittsburgh. You've been in the wild card game, in fact, won it in 2013, but then lost the wild card game the next two years. And even with the expanded 12 team system, you haven't made it in the years since then. How is a small team like Pittsburgh, small market team, ever going to get back into the playoff picture with the crazy money that we have in America in 2023? Well, they do it the same way Tampa Bay does it. They do it the same way Minnesota does it. Um, they develop the talent. Um, and Neil Huntington did a just phenomenal job of finding diamonds in the rough at the major league level. Um he, he did have some talent they brought through the system, but quite frankly, a lot of that was was developed under his predecessor, uh, David Littlefield. But he didn't do a real good job of developing the talent he had. Tyler Glasnow is, is a prime example. Ben Sherrington was brought on and has developed, to me, what is the deepest farm system I've seen in Pittsburgh since the 1960s. And there's a lot of good the great young arms in that system um, beginning with Paul Skeens the number one pick in the entire draft who um, seems like a generational talent um, but you have others you have Jared Jones um, who we will see in Pittsburgh towards the latter end of this year um, Bubba Chandler who um, was originally hoped to be a, an Otani he was a, he was actually um, had a scholarship offer at Clemson to play quarterback um, but he, he was a talented uh, two-way player and just couldn't make it as, a, as a, a hitter in the minors. So they said, let's concentrate on pitching. And, man, he really showed the talent he had in the latter half of uh, uh, the season last year. You have Anthony Solomato, uh, uh, a guy who reminds you more of a Doug Drabick, very smart pitcher who doesn't have a 100-mile-an-hour fastball. So these are just four of, of uh, a bevy of pitchers they have in the system that can project to a number two or number one pitcher in, in anything. So the trick is to get them developed, but man, with the potential they have, that's what's going to get them in the playoffs. I, I do anticipate in two years, they will be competing for a playoff spot, if not a playoff team. On the baseball lifer podcast, talking with David Finoli, we've talked about Jim Leland. We've talked about Pittsburgh baseball. Last question, and I know it isn't about baseball, but you've got a stocking stuffer that you can offer to sports fans out there. Absolutely. Um, we wrote a book, uh, my friend uh, Gary Ken and I, um, wrote a book on the 1910 Pitt Panther football team. It was a team that was undefeated, um, has... Uh, um, retroactively was named national champions by by a few people and um they had the distinction of being the only team in pit uh in the program's history to not allow a point they outscored their opponents 282 to nothing and the book kind of details that team um the university uh, does not recognize them as national champions and we kind of lay out a reason why they should and and the reason why the university doesn't but the other interesting part of this team is their coach, uh, Joe Thompson. 
um, was was an incredibly interesting guy. He he ended up uh, uh, being a, uh, a colonel in the army during World War Two or World War One, and was so brave. He was shot four times, refused to go to the hospital because he wanted to be with his men. Um, was subject to to gas attack, which eventually killed him a few years later. And it it just as we started researching this team, just one story begat another, which, which just made it such an interesting uh, uh, story to tell. And uh, we put it in a book, we call it Perfection, the story of the 1910 Pittsburgh Panthers. And uh, we can, uh, you can buy it on, on Amazon um, and would make the perfect, not just for the Pitt fan, but for college football fans uh, alike would, uh, would really enjoy this book. And that's the stocking stuffer. Our guest has been, David Finoli. David, thanks a lot for coming back on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Always a pleasure. When we come back, it'll be Bill Cushing joining us, if you keep it right where it is. I am having such a problem at work. This is the second time this month I have had two computers down, and I can't get my computer company to come to the office and fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when the computers are not working properly. I need somebody that can come out, see what's wrong, and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They have been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an a rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860, 732-356-8860, courtlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about it on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of computer services. Back with you on the Baseball Lifer podcast, Don Wardlow here, and my guest is writer... Bill Cushing. Bill, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks for having me on board here, even though I'm coming from the other side of the country. (laughs) Right on. Um, You're out there in California, and all the talk is the talk of Shohei. Yeah, where's Shohei going to land? Yes. And and of course, we're hoping to grab him. Uh, Although... I got to admit, I hey, uh, Justin Turner turned down his option year in Boston, and I would love to see him come back, to be honest. I've, I've always been a big fan of his. Uh, and in fact, we've even got, he gave our son, uh, we have a disabled son, and uh, he gave him a signed hat. So I thought that I always, he's sort of the guy who's my favorite. <laughs> You've got to like it. And when you say we, I'm guessing you bleed Dodger blue. Oh, boy. Well, now I do. I I was raised pretty much a Yankee fan, but uh, my wife will not allow me to wear my Yankees hats anymore. (laughs) I guess I'm a Dodger fan. And and she's, of course, and I think I mentioned that to you, I turned her into a Dodger fan. Uh, 
though, because she had, I mean, she was from Peru. She, what did she know about baseball? Right. When we got together, I, I, yeah, I would watch and, and, and she would watch with me and ask questions. I said, look, the best way to see a game is live. And I took her to her first game and, uh, what was it? The very beginning of the game, I think. In fact, uh, Piazza was still with the Dodgers at that time. He hit a grand slam, and the place just went nuts, of course, and, and she was hooked from then on. I can't understand the idea of Otani leaving the West Coast. He already plays for the Angels. I mean, mm-hmm. if he's if he's going to go somewhere, I'd say, you know, Dodgers, Giants. Well, also, the, the, like somebody pointed out, Los Angeles has the largest Japanese population in the country. So, I mean, just from the standpoint of, of being able to hang out with his, you know, his people, so to speak. And, and uh, you know, certainly the, it would not hurt the Dodgers at all, because, of course, anytime the Angels would come to town, you know, the stadium would be packed with Japanese people coming to see him. Hideo Nomo began the present run of Asian ball players to America. Yeah. Before Hideo Nomo, there was nobody basically coming yeah. from the Pacific Rim to here. Even though you're going to have to put up with him not pitching for a year, I think it, uh, to me it'd be worth it anyway. Uh, you know, because once he recovers from that surgery, he'll be fine, I think. But, now, you've been the lifelong baseball fan and you've become a writer mm-hmm. for a living and you've stated to me that baseball has its place in the writings that you've done oh yeah absolutely and and i think it, it's funny because and this uh not just writing but i've always said baseball is the best sport for storytelling whether it's movies writing poetry what i don't care baseball just to me works the best uh you know uh not that i don't appreciate watching movies about football and of course i love uh um, uh what's the one uh, uh slap shot of course but i'm here again being from new york i'm a hockey fan as well uh but yeah, baseball, I've, I've always said baseball, even the worst baseball movie is fun to watch. Uh, and I don't think I've read anything about baseball that I haven't enjoyed. Uh, I even use a couple of poems in some of my classes once in a while. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard Robert Francis uh, wrote a series of baseball poems. And He's got two of them. One's called the pitcher and the other's called the base stealer. And you play them off each other and it's really fun. And of course, there's the most famous baseball poem of them all. (laughs) Casey at the back. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, and I've I've written a couple of poems, uh, mostly about the Dodgers. Well, yeah, actually all of them involve the Dodgers in one form or another. Uh, and then the two stories, one of them is actually about the Yankees and the, and the other is about here again, turning my wife on. In fact, the, the title is my own special Frankenstein monster. Uh, that I created a monster when I took her to a baseball game because now she's so tapped into it. That, well, we, we now have season tickets 
not the full season, but we, we do quarter seasons and hit every Sunday game and then a couple of others as well. On the Baseball Lifer podcast, talking with Bill Cushing, there is a book that should be out, and that book is called Time Well Spent. Bill, tell me about that one. Yeah, it's it's actually it's a collection of several stories. Uh, they're all my own. It's it's a nonfiction, and what I'm doing is some of them are as short as one page, and others are as long as maybe five or six pages. None of them are terribly long, but they're all just kind of snapshots of my life, starting from when I was an infant, and then the last story involves my son and and something that happened with him that is uh, really very entertaining. Uh, but uh, yeah, the two big baseball stories are one is from the 1978 season when the uh, Yankees were, what, 13 games behind the Red Sox at the All-Star break. And yes, then, they were. And then came back and, and tied it up at the end of the season and, you know, took off. And, and then the other one, like I say, is the one about, you know, taking my wife to her first ball game and what that was like. So, uh, yeah, sports figures into it. Uh Actually, oddly enough, and well, maybe not, well, not oddly for people of my age, but maybe for a lot of younger people, uh, there's two stories in there, I believe, yeah, where hitchhiking is involved, uh, <laughs> which is something you can no longer do. Uh, so, yeah, it's just kind of a look back at my, you know, figure, look, I'm, I was born in the middle of the 20th century, uh, you know, sort of at the tail end of the baby boom. The, the baby boomers and uh, just kind of looking back and look, this is what it was like, you know, before the two thousands, basically. There's a couple of books that you have that I understand are books of poetry. I like the titles of both of them. What is, they're both from 2019. One of them's called a former life. Former now, life yeah. Don't, don't you think that uh, after the pandemic, a lot of us, think that the time before that was a former life yeah yeah and that's actually that was titled after it's one of my first poems that i wrote it was called a former life and it was based on i was walking along and and i saw this i saw something that just reminded me of my childhood and sort of took me back to that and that that's what that poem was about and the book as well and i, I would have to say that book and then the most recent one, the just a little cage of bone, are both basically. In fact, the new one, I basically say that this is what it is. I'm an old man, and I'm looking back and recalling my life. You know, the the people I've known and the things I've done. Uh, yeah, the other one from 2019 was the music speaks. Uh, I, I think that's the one you're talking about. It is, and as a complete amateur music writer. I will say loud and clear that, yes, music absolutely speaks. Mm -hmm. It spoke to me since I was a little kid, and I wasn't able to write it. I wasn't able to answer until mm -hmm. I was 46 years old when I wrote my first song. So, yes, music absolutely speaks. Yeah. And it's, yeah, that's a collection. That that was a fun one to put together, and I've actually expanded it. The, the one I have out now, initially it was a regional chapbook comp competition and it won and i was so pleased with the results that i took it and i revamped it and made it much slicker put illustrations in 
uh, and then added a few new pieces that weren't in the original uh, chapbook that was entered that won the contest. And then it, it was funny because in 2019, it won that San Gabriel Valley Festival uh, Poetry Festival contest. And then in 2021, it took a New York City Book Award. So uh, I was very pleased with how that one turned out. Uh, and that's all here again, music, mostly jazz. That's sort of my thing. Uh, but there's also some rock and some classical in there, that sort of stuff. On the Baseball Lifer podcast with writer Bill Cushing. And Bill, another title that I really like from a book that came out in 2021, and that's called This Just In. <laughs> anybody who listens to a lot of news broadcasts, especially Years and years ago, when I listened to a lot more news broadcasts than I do now, you hear that phrase every day. This just in. And it's supposed to make you sit up and take notice, if you will. Yeah. And it's funny because that's, well, first of all, it was, I took the title of the book from the title of a poem that I wrote. Uh, but I began, when I was in high school, I started as a journalism major. And so what I did in that book was I kind of replicated uh, a newspaper, a traditional newspaper, where the first part of the book is mostly related to news events or events in history, that kind of thing. And then it moves into maybe commentary. And then there's, you know, arts and entertainment. And then, of course, the last section being sports, because that's always the end section of any traditional newspaper. So, it, it, yeah, I sort of divided that into uh, different sections that would replicate the order of a traditional print paper. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I I kind of, as soon as I wrote the poem, I was like, yeah, this is what's going to be the next book title, because, you know, I, I like that title a lot. Uh, and once again, you got to be of a certain age to have that have any meaning, I guess, now. And yet another title that'll raise some eyebrows, and I love it. The Commies Come to Waterton. Tell <laughs> yes. me about that. That's a uh, it's a collection of short stories. They're just varied all over the place. Uh, there's a supernatural story in there. There's uh, once again, most of them come out of my own life and experience. Uh, and in fact, the the title story is actual based on. Uh, a story coming out of my own life when I was a kid, because I grew up during the Cold War, and of course the communists were hiding under, hiding under the bed. We were all convinced. Uh, you know, this is in the day of bomb shelters and you know ducking under the desks and things like that. And so, yeah, I I put together this book because I had this collection of short stories, and the this just in was published by uh cyberwit over in india and they wrote back and they said look have you got anything else in the works and i said well i don't have any poetry but are you interested in a short story collection i said yeah sure come on send along and so uh i got together with a woman uh who was had a uh wanted to put a book together and so i just sent her the stuff she formatted it for me and illustrated it and the whole nine yards so uh we came up with that one together uh, but yeah, like I say, the, 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 the stories are, I mean, 
just all over the place. There's no set theme or anything like that. There's one about a farmer. Uh, like I say, there's there's one about making the deal with the devil, which is an old standby story that everybody likes to get to. Uh, but then there's a lot of them that are just, you know, pure fiction. Uh, but some of them, are, yeah, are out of my life. And all the books I've mentioned up to now, written by Bill Cushing, can be found on Amazon or wherever you choose oh, yeah. to get books. I, I checked. I wanted to make sure. And they're all yeah. there. And the one coming out is Time Well Spent. That should be there along about Thanksgiving, if not sooner. Now, please correct me if I'm wrong. Is that where you have the two uh, baseball-related stories? Yeah. Yeah, th those have the two stories. Um, and one was about one of my favorite baseball seasons of all, 1978. The 78 season. I yeah. was 15 years old. I was okay. in high school, and high school wasn't too happy. You know, neither was middle junior high school, as they called it. Middle school, they yeah. call it now. And high school was only marginally better. So <laughs> about what little happiness there was revolved around boxing matches and baseball and yeah. baseball meant my beloved yankees mm -hmm. yeah. how did you build the story well it, and once again this is a uh it actually happened i was uh it, it's called the captain baseball and me and the captain is actually captain kangaroo uh <laughs> yeah, he was still on then how about that yeah but uh Basically, I was in the city, and like I say, this was probably in August after they were starting to close the gap with the Red Sox, uh, and uh, I was waiting for my train. I lived out on the east end of the island at the time, and, and uh, you know, I had to wait in Penn Station for an hour or so for my train because I got all done, and I don't know if you ever heard of the Iron Horse uh, it was in Penn Station at the top floor. It's like one of the original sports bars. I, I don't even think it's there anymore. Uh, but no, I went the, there. the one iron horse I know was Lou Gehrig. No, yeah, but this was a it was a bar. Gotcha uh, loud and clear. That was yeah. It was called the Iron Horse, and it was like I say, fittingly up on top of Penn Station, which is where the Iron Horse is all gathered. Uh, and I stopped there for a beer and and. I'm just sitting there and something domestic and, and this older man comes in and he sits down and he orders a Guinness and he turns to me and he goes, well, why are you drinking that garbage? Why don't you have a real beer for a change? And I was like, <laughs> well, you know. And so we talked about the Yankees. I said, we got into the whole, he was waiting for his train. I'm waiting for mine. And, you know, we talked about, you know, I think Ron Guidry had just struck out like 17 angels the week before or a couple of weeks before. Uh, so that was all the talk and here again, closing the gap and, and getting ready to take the series as it turned out. And when he left, uh, and this is sort of the gist of the story without reading the whole thing, uh, the bartender comes down and he's, you know, wiping down the bar and he says, do you know who that was? And I said, hey, you know what? He looked a little familiar, but nah, I don't know the man. He says, that was Captain Kangaroo. So I was like, "Whoa!" I had a beer with Captain Kangaroo. Bob Keefer talked about baseball. How cool is yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, and, and he bought. So you know. <laughs> gotta like it. And yeah. and in in the same book, I assume is the story 
that you tell about taking your wife who hails yeah, from Peru wife. to her first baseball yeah, game. Yeah. Talk talk to me a little about that. Well, that can. was and and it, it was funny because here again we got i moved up here in 97 96 i moved here in 96 and i have to admit and i say this in the story i was still upset over the 94 strike i i was really i, I was just upset and with well that. you should be yeah, yeah. I, I get it but when cal ripkin was closing in on uh, lou gehrig's record and I don't, I, it was funny because in 1982, I had been in Baltimore and that was Ripken's rookie year. And so I got to see him develop and I always liked him. I mean, even though I'm not an Orioles fan per se, but you know, I was living for, in the city for a year. So kind of followed him and kept following him and I've always liked him. And so when he's closing in on the record, I said, okay, I'm going to lighten up a little bit. I'll start watching the games where he plays because I want to watch him do this. Well, my wife would come in and let's say she's from Peru. I mean, soccer was her game. And she would look and, you know, ask me questions. What are they doing here? What's going on there? You know, explain it to me. And I told her at one point, I said, you know, there's really no better way to watch a ball game than to actually go to the park. And so we, we set up a date and we went you know, um, to the Dodgers game. And uh, Mike Piazza was on the team that year. And he hits a grand slam. And, of course, the place goes nuts. And my wife just, she was hooked. I mean, it was so funny, just the look on her face. Like, this is so much fun. And now, I swear, now she knows the team better than I do sometimes. I mean, you know, she reads everything about them. And, and uh, we we do get a quarter season. We take our son with us and we all go to the games, uh, you know, get to watch and then follow them. And, you know, been to a few playoff games, all that's, you know, once that price gets up in that stratosphere, <laughs> I'm a retired teacher, so I can't exactly go hitting all those, but yeah, we make whatever we can. And, and it's, it's been great. I mean, it, it's funny, but like I say, the the only problem is I'm no longer allowed to wear my Yankees paraphernalia. So, uh, <laughs> talking with Bill Cushing, writer on the Baseball Lifer podcast, and this may seem a random question, but one thing you mentioned was living in Puerto Rico. Did you ever get to see a baseball game down there? Yeah, and you know what, I, I Puerto Rico would play a lot with Cuba. Uh, in fact, that's funny. I, I never wrote it up, but the, there was one day I, I taught at high school down there when I was living there. And uh, one day I come into work and, and the, is it the math teacher, I think it was the math teacher that I worked with, comes walking and he's got a big black eye. Well, apparently the Cuban team had been in town that night, you know, the night before playing, and he got in a fight with a bunch of fans. <laughs> not good, not good. Yeah. But uh, the impression I had, I watched a boxing match from mm -hmm. Puerto Rico on TV here in New in New Jersey, and uh -huh. it was a Puerto Rican boxer Alfredo Escalera and okay. Nic Nicaraguan boxer. Alexis Arguello and oh, okay. yeah, those yeah. people there were 17,000 of them it was a howling rainstorm but mm -hmm. they were they were howling louder than the storm <laughs> was and they yeah. were pounding on the drums 
And I'm wondering, you know, was baseball, did baseball have that kind of fans in Puerto oh, they, Rico? They, they love, I mean, and think of all the Puerto Rican players you have. Uh, well, of course, a lot of South American and, and, and you know, Dominicans and Puerto Ricans. Absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of them that, that play, uh, you know, uh, I mean, Kiki Hernandez is still with us after a short stint out of town, but uh, brought him back. Uh, well, I, it was funny because Alex Cora, who, you know, managed the, the Red Sox, uh, he he would played with the Dodgers initially. I, I don't know if initially, but I know he was with us for a few years. Uh, he was Puerto Rican as well. Uh, and I'm trying to think, who's the other Puerto Rican we have? I don't know, but they, and, and of course, Clemente is like God down there. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, he's the stadium, the main stadium in San Juan is named after him and the, the statue and all that. Uh, uh, in fact, it's kind of funny, it's somewhat dovetailing off of that. I taught for uh, a couple of years at Pasadena City College, and this is where Jackie Robinson played uh, before he went to UCLA. Yes, he did, and and he's a here again. You you go anywhere on PCC campus, and you know there's pictures of him. the The stadium is named after him, and all that stuff. So of course, Jackie Robinson is a is a major figure out here because he did live in Pasadena, uh, but uh, uh, yeah, I and you know I guess. It makes sense, though, when you talk about, like, the Puerto Ricans and the Dominicans and the South Americans. I mean, most of those people, they, they don't have a, a great economy, so it's cheaper to play baseball. I mean, you don't even need anything fancy. In fact, I told my wife one time, I said, well, yeah, one of the reasons those guys are such great hitters, when they were kids, they were using broomsticks. And if you can hit a ball with a broomstick, a bat is like having a paddle. Definitely. Uh, so. The man is... Bill Cushing, the book is Time Well Spent, and there's another book coming, and the subject is the Civil War, and that's a, an area, an arena, if you will, where early baseball was spread from north to south. Mm, that's true, that's true. And what's your book going to be? Well, it doesn't figure it. My book is actually, I was, well... It's the two brothers, the two Cushing brothers, who are distant cousins of mine. And one died at the Battle of Gettysburg, and the other one uh, became... Well, there was four brothers, actually. All of them served the Union in one form or another. Uh, but these two, uh, Alonzo and William, really made their mark. Uh, uh, Alonzo was in the Army, uh, probably one of the youngest... Uh, you know, uh, uh, West Pointers to... to go right into battle. Uh, in fact, when he died, he died on the last day of the uh, of Gettysburg, and, and he was 22 years old. Uh, and William, who's his younger brother, is actually, I am named after. Uh, that's where my father got my name, was in honor of William Barker, uh, who was a real character. Uh, he, he actually got kicked out of Annapolis for his behavior. Uh, but when the Civil War broke out, they needed people so badly, they, they let them back in. 
Well, his behavior really didn't change a whole lot. He was never very good at following orders, especially if he didn't think they served any real military purpose. And so he would sort of go out on his own and do things, you know, without getting permission. Uh, in fact, I think that's one of the lines I use in the book, the, the standard of, you know, it's easier to seek uh, forgiveness than permission. Uh, and he would just go out and do stuff on his own and and the Navy would, you know, the Admiralty would be very upset with him and want to take him to task. But then every time he did something, it worked out well. <laughs> it, it turned into some intelligence for the Union or, you know, uh, just stuff like that. And it, probably his most famous thing is, I don't I don't know if you're familiar with the Albemarle, uh, the sinking of the Albemarle was, that was him. That was, he was the one who sank it. The Albemarle was one of the uh, uh, ironclad ships of the day. And it, they called it the bully of the Roanoke because they just couldn't do anything about this boat. It just kept coming down and just, you know, kicking the crap out of the out of the Union ships. So they finally turned to him. They said, look, if anybody can come up with a way of getting at this thing, this is the guy. And, and he came up with a, uh, a design of a torpedo that, uh, you know, actually took it down. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're two very interesting characters, very different and yet both of them devoted to each other. Uh, you know, they, they, they were the closest in age. They loved each other ever since they were kids. And certainly during the war, uh, even though each one went into a different branch of the service, uh, you know, they were really tight. So it's sort of, uh, it's it's going to be a short book. It's going to be maybe 50 pages long with illustrations. I've got like the diagram of the torpedo, uh, you know, pictures of the two of them in uniform. Uh, that kind of thing. So it's I'm really looking forward to that one. It's, it's sort of a labor of love I've been working on for years and finally said, look, I, I, I want to get this thing out now. Uh, and you're looking at that being out by the end of 2023. Yeah, it, it should be out by, you know, right after Thanksgiving. Uh, I just got the first proof in today. Uh, so I'm going to look at that and hopefully get that back to him. Well, I want to get the time well spent. I got that proof as well, but I should be able to get that back to the publisher by Saturday or Sunday. And then I'll jump on to the, the two brothers, uh, get that going, and hopefully have that to him by the end of next week. And then we can you know, drop them publicly and uh, hopefully, you know, uh, get some Christmas sales going. <laughs> now, hopefully that's exactly what will happen. My guest has been author Bill Cushing. The book that will be there first is Time Well Spent. Then there'll be another Civil War story also by Bill Cushing. The title is still in the works, which comes to me as a minor surprise. I thought a title had to be there way in advance before a book could go out. Well, he, uh, I came up with the the one title, and he just wrote. To, in fact, he just wrote me today, and I, I got the email. He says, "Look, why don't we change it to this?" And I said, "Yeah, that works fine. Yeah, we're instead of two brothers, we're going to make it heroic brothers." Uh, he, and I said, "Yeah, you really don't need the number because the cover will show that you got two guys there." Yeah, he being your publisher. Is that but right? I, I told him, Wait. I said, "The nice thing is, it also lets me introduce the fact that there were two other brothers." Uh, maybe not quite as impactful historically as these two were, but certainly you have four brothers that all served the Union in one form or another. That ought to be quite a story. Bill Cushing, yeah. 
I want to thank you for your time on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Well, thanks a lot. If I may, I don't know if I have time, but uh, perhaps you could indulge me with one of my poems. Talking with Bill Cushing, one of your poems, you made a request to read one of them on yeah. this program, and by all means, you have the floor. Right, right. And this is from the last poetry book, which is called Just a Little Cage of Bone. And this, the title of the poem is Playing Ball in the Hereafter. As children, Henry Aaron and Don Sutton grew up in towns three hours apart and learned the game between fields of cotton. Then the hitter moved east, the pitcher west, as they took paths to opposite coasts, two all-stars, they became among the best. Upon dying, Sutton arrived first, and may have used the time to loosen his arm while warming up on the clay, waiting for hammering Hank's arrival as they play now in eternal prime, celestial fans admire erstwhile rivals and wonder from where they sit, what is the most wondrous display, the sweet pitch or power-driven hit? So that I wrote after uh, the deaths of Don Sutton and, and Hank Aaron. I like that. What's the name of that poem? It's called Playing Ball in the Hereafter. That poem is... Uh, please tell me again what book that one is from. That's uh, the, the title of the book is Just a Little Cage of Bone. And you know what a lot of people write off about Don Sutton is he was an excellent broadcaster as well as an excellent yeah, pitcher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why they write that off, but, you know, because if you talk about Tim McCarver, people will first say broadcaster, then yeah. player. But with Don Sutton, it's quite the reverse. Well, as as an additional plug, I will say any Dodgers fans, there are, there are three poems in here that involve the Dodgers. So, <laughs> Excellent. So we've been talking with Bill Cushing on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Thanks again for being on the program. Oh, thanks for having me. It was, it was really fun. And, and good to meet a kindred spirit. Of well, course, thank that's you. not hard to do during baseball season. Thank you much. And we'll be back in just a minute with a word about next week's program on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Keep it where it is. I'm having such a problem at work. It's the second time this month. I've got two computers down, and I can't get my computer repair company to come to the office to fix them. I think they are too busy with other bigger companies to help us. You know, I was having the same problem until we met Cortland Computer Services in Middlesex, New Jersey. They respond to most of my calls the same day, either by accessing my computers remotely or by sending a technician to my office. Wow, that would be great. It is such a disruption when our computers are not working properly. I need someone who can see what's wrong and fix it. On our first meeting, they surveyed our network for security, identified some problem areas, and set us up with security software designed to prevent malware, ransomware, and all of the other threats that are on the internet these days. They've been helping central New Jersey businesses for 30 years, and they have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. You should contact them either on the web at courtlandcomputerservices.com or by phone at 732-356-8860.
732-356-8860, portlandcomputerservices.com. Tell them you heard about them on the Baseball Lifer podcast and get a $100 coupon toward your first two hours of services. Back once again on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Don Wardlow here, bringing it home for the week. Now, between the time I recorded the opening of this program and now when I'm recording the closing, there has been some breaking news. Tyler Glass now has been traded from the Tampa Bay Rays to the Los Angeles Dodgers. And while everybody wants pitching, everybody needs pitching, the Dodgers are absolutely desperate for pitching with all the injuries they've got and pitchers who are maybe going to be back sometime this year and maybe not back until 2025. This was the first of hopefully several moves for the Dodgers to make as they brought in Tyler Glass now and gave up basically nothing special. Next week, it's our Christmas version of the Baseball Lifer podcast, and we got a special Christmas show for you. Those of you who watch A Christmas Story every year, the movie about Ralphie and his BB gun, that story was originally written by Gene Shepard, and it was a chapter in his book, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, and it was called Duel in the Snow, or Red Rider Nails the Cleveland Street Kid. Well, Gene Shepard wrote four books, and for more than 20 years, he was a commentator on WOR Radio in New York. But before he ever did that, the man who made his money doing a Christmas story was a baseball broadcaster on the AAA level for the Toledo Mudhens. So next week, as my Christmas present to you, from 1964, you'll be able to hear Gene Shepard talking about broadcasting AAA baseball back in the 1940s when he was right out of the Army. So that's your Christmas present for this year on the Baseball Lifer podcast. Until next week, this is Don Wardlow. Have a good week, everybody.